Good morning. Can you hear me? Good morning. We've got two passages this morning. The first one is from Colossians 1, 19 through 22. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether, in he- whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The second passage is from 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. What a joy it is to be with you this morning. Uh, Matt's exactly right. We, you, you guys are a, a, a beloved sister church to us at Henson. Uh, I bring you greetings from, from the congregation there at Henson Baptist Church. Uh, and we've, it's just been a joy these past years getting to know you, getting to know you through Matt. Uh, our, our youth groups have done things together. Uh, your pastors get together regularly for fellowship, for encouragement, for prayer. Uh, we've worked together to revitalize another church here in Portland. Uh, you know, we've played the, the, the tournament brackets together, our staff have at least. I feel like the next step, we should just organize like a basketball tournament between Henson and Harvest or, or something. Uh, but, but just know that, that we pray for you regularly. Uh, we're so grateful for your ministry in the gospel, your partnership uh, in the gospel here in the city of Portland. And it's a joy to worship with you this morning. Yeah, uh, just this past week, uh, speaking of kind of a, a busy, rainy kind of week, uh, it, it, was, it must have been just some hectic morning um, as my wife was trying to get the kids out of the house. They were probably headed for some appointment. Uh, and I'm trying to corral the kids. We're, trying, we're looking for socks. We're looking for shoes. You know, kids aren't listening. My wife is stressed out. There's general confusion. And this thought entered my mind. Man, I... I miss my single days. <laughs> I, I, uh, life was a lot easier when I was single. And of course, that's a terrible thought, right? Uh, I know it. I mean, uh, God has been so gracious to bless me with, with a family. My, my wife is an undeserved gift to me. My kids are, are, are incredible wonders in my life. Uh, my life would be so much emptier without them. Uh, and that's not just true of my family, but that's true of all kinds of people that God has surrounded me with. Uh, an extended family, friends, co-workers, a loving church, and so forth. 
But you know, there are times when, when, when I'm tempted to think, man, relationships are hard. Uh, people are a pain. Um, being a parent would be a lot easier if there were no kids, right? <laughs> being, being a pastor would be a lot easier if there were no sinners. Uh, maybe for you, you know, owning a business would be a lot easier if there were no customers. Um, I wonder if you can identify with that. Why do we do that? What is it about us that even though we know that relationships are what matters most, yet we find ourselves so easily resenting them, uh, turning our backs on them, fighting for our own independence, our own will? You know, for so many of us here this morning, it's, it's this experience of, of frustration in our relationships that's brought us some of the deepest pains in our life. You know, all this may be true with the people around us, but what about in our relationship with God? What happens if you begin to resent God and to turn your back on Him, to think life would be so much easier if there was just no God to follow? What, what kind of sorrow would that produce? And if we have felt that way, if we have turned our backs on God, do we just expect that He would just take us back whenever we want? Or would a broken relationship with God carry with it far more serious consequences? You know, in these weeks leading up to Easter, as Matt said, you guys are exploring sort of the storyline of the Bible because the Bible isn't just a, a random assortment of, of rules and disconnected stories. No, the Bible tells one story, and it's actually a love story. It's the story of God's pursuit of relationship with his people. Behind our many relationships here on earth stands the one relationship that matters most, namely our relationship with God, our maker, our creator. And the brokenness of our earthly relationships are only a warning, an indicator that there is something wrong in our relationship with God. And yet this is exactly what the storyline of the Bible is about. It, it, if I had to summarize my point uh, kind of in one sentence, this is what I would say. Here it is. Jesus has come to restore our broken relationship with God. Super simple, and yet a, a profound message that the Bible gives us. Friends, the, the best news in the world is that God desires to be in relationship with you in spite of your sin. And so Jesus has come to do whatever it takes to make that happen. And, and this is what I want us to think about as we walk through the storyline of the Bible this morning. Whether you've been hearing the Bible all your life, or whether this is your first time ever in church here this morning, I pray that you would come to see that, in fact, this story is your story. So let's think about uh, this, the storyline of Scripture, just in these four steps, and I'll go ahead and just pull them all up here so that I don't have to mess with this anymore. Uh, here it is. The first step, let's think about creation, right? We were made to be in relationship with God. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there. I'm going to look at just Genesis 1. All right, this is where the story begins. Um, I won't read all of this, but as you, as you kind of, if, you're, if you're at all familiar with the way the Bible opens, we see that in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. God says, let there be, and 
everything is by, by the power of his word. He creates the waters and the, and the skies and the, and the land, and he creates all living things. And, and as he creates these living things, we, we see this really interesting phrase that he creates each thing according to its kind. Uh, so, so he creates, you know, apple trees according to their kind. Every apple tree is patterned after an apple tree. He creates zebras according to their kind. Every zebra is patterned after a zebra. But then in verse 26, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So in other words, man is patterned after God. Uh, in the image of God, man uniquely mirrors, advertises, displays what God is like before the rest of creation. Uh, like a son who walks in his father's footsteps, so man is designed to, to represent God's character, God's rule over creation. Being, being made in the image of God, male and female, they were now to exercise God's good and loving reign in, in this world, to, to fill the world with the glory of God. You know, the garden was kind of like, uh, there's language in there that hints that the garden was kind of like a temple that God built in the world where, where God dwelled. In, in the ancient Near East, if you walked into a temple, you would expect to find an, an impressive idol or image of, of the deity of that temple. But here in the garden... God didn't make an idol. God made people. People, his image bearers, who were to, by their lives, show something of what God is like. And so as Christians, we really need to get this. Uh, we live in a world that's constantly pressuring us to find our identity in ourselves. Uh, particularly for young people, we need to hear this. You know, so so, so are, you, are you a conservative? Are you a liberal? Are you a hipster? Are you a nerd? Are you a jock? Are you an artist? Uh, are, are you straight? Are you gay? Are you married? Are you single? And so on and so forth. The, the, the culture is pressuring us into this, this idea of our individualistic self-expression. Uh, we're told, you, you just be what you want to be. Don't, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. But friends, here in Genesis 1, we see something far more profound, that, that our deepest identity has nothing to do with self-expression. Rather, you are one who has been made in the image of God. You exist for, for, for God's expression, uh, that, that your life might, might be uh, a display of something of the glory of God. God. God is infinitely glorious, and yet God has made you just in the way you are to show a particular facet of his glory. And, and that's not something that anybody else can display. Uh, rather, in the life that he has given you, in, in your personality, in your abilities, in your relationships, in your opportunities, in your hardships, you exist to uniquely display something of what God is like, his glory, his character, his goodness. But God didn't just create us simply to fulfill a function. 
Even more, we see here that he made mankind for a relationship. Uh, Did you notice in verse 28, um, God talks to to man and woman. Uh, He doesn't talk to any of the animals. He doesn't talk to the trees. No, but he talks to man. And and man is able to respond, to talk back. Uh, Where they're speaking and listening, there's a relationship. Uh, I can assure you that no matter how close you are to your pet, if you were to go home from church today and your dog walked into the living room and asked, hey, how's church today? <laughs> that would totally change the relationship. <laughs> you know, where there's communication, there's a relationship. This is what my wife is always trying to tell me. I need to communicate. <laughs> that, that's what we see here. God talks to his people. He communicates with them. Genesis 1 and 2 makes it clear that God didn't just create a beautiful world, wind up the clock, and then leave us alone. No, rather, throughout Genesis 1 and 2, God is speaking to man. He's giving to him a mission. He's giving him commands. He he provides him a wife. He blesses them in their marriage. He interacts with them. He dwells with them in the garden. This is a world where, where mankind lives in right relationship with God. You know, Adam's most important choice is whether or not he will live in relationship with God, listening to God's words or going his own way. Uh, You know, there's all kinds of things that Adam needs to figure out going forward. He's got to figure out agriculture and technology and, and raising a family and so on and so forth. And yet, his success in this world that God has made hinges entirely on one thing, whether or not he will listen to God's word and follow him. Friends, I wonder what your view of God is. Is God simply an abstract set of moral rules and standards that you have to live by? Is is God sort of religious rituals that you have to perform, you know, showing up at church, singing songs, emotional experiences and goosebumps? Uh, Maybe to you, God is simply just a reflection of whatever it is that you approve of, that you think he should be, be like. Friends, here we see the truth that God is other than us, that that God is is transcendent. He's all-powerful. He's the creator that made the world with a word, and yet at the same time, he is a personal being. He's not a force. He's not just, you know, fate. No, he's a personal being who made us to be in relationship with him. Would you want to know this God? At the end of Genesis 2, we see the world as God intended. Man in right relationship with creation, man in right relationship with one another, and man in right relationship with God. And it was very good. Which makes the next step that much more tragic, right? The fall. The fall. Genesis 3. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Rather than representing God's rule over the earth, man rebels against God. He decides to represent his own rule. Rather than listening to the voice of God, they decide to listen to another voice, to follow another master. Notice the irony in in Satan's lie. He promises them that if they eat of the fruit, they will be like God. Of course, they were already made in the image of God. But they weren't satisfied with that. And so in wanting to be God, now they must live a life apart from God. God gives the man what he asks for, and we see at the end of the chapter, Adam and Eve are banished from his presence. And ever since that day, because of our rejection of God, we have been cut off from his presence. Here's the the agony of our situation. We are those who are made to be in relationship with God. And yet, by our own rebellion, we are cut off. And, And all the things that now we try to substitute for God, they come up empty. They leave us wanting more. The Bible is really clear that even though we have sinned, that doesn't mean that we are no longer image bearers of God. Even though we have all sinned, we are still made in the image of God. But, but except now, rather than that being an accurate picture of what God is like, man has become a, a false message about God. The, the, the mirror is bent, as it were, sort of like a, a grotesque carnival mirror. Rather than showing God to be holy and perfect and righteous and loving like he is, our lives show a very different message, uh, selfish, impatient, boastful, self-absorbed. You know, as a dad, I, I understand this a little bit better. You know, I'm proud of my son or my sons when they run over to protect their sister. Uh, I'm not so proud of my boy when he screams and takes away toys from other kids and pulls his pants down in the playground. Because, of course, what I'm concerned about is our other parents who are thinking, man, whose kid is that? And and this is what the watching universe is thinking when they look at humanity and they say, man, whose creation is that? Who made those creatures? Uh, Every second of our lives are an advertisement for the God who made us Every word, every thought, every feeling, every action ought to communicate something of what God is like. And sometimes we do good, but so often we sin. And every one of those sins tells a lie about what God is like. They they insult the perfect goodness and holiness of the God who made us. Friends, be careful not to depersonalize sin. Uh, All sin, at the end of the day, even sin against one another, all sin has to do with God because your entire existence has to do with God. Well, it doesn't take long after Genesis 3 until human relationships fall apart. Adam blames Eve for his sin. The relationship between husband and wife are now characterized by selfishness and domineering. We have the first murder in chapter 4. And from there, humanity just sinks deeper and deeper into sin until finally all of humanity is scattered all over the world for their rebellion against God. But then God starts something new. God in his mercy had a plan to save 
his people, to use a people for accomplishing his original purposes for creation, for the display of his glory. And so out of all the nations of the world, God chooses the people of Israel to be his treasure possession, rescuing them from slavery in Egypt, bringing them into covenant relationship with himself. In Exodus, we see, we see something like a marriage ceremony where, where the people enter into covenant with God, and God once again brings them into his presence and speaks to them. If they would only live according to his word, he would bless them. They, they, would, be, they would dwell in the promised land, which is kind of like a garden, and where, they, where he would bless them, and they would be a light to the nations, showing them God's glory and goodness. But if they failed to keep God's word, if they rejected God, then like Adam, they would be exiled from the land. Well, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that Israel failed miserably again and again. Though God was patient with them over and over again, though God rescued them from their enemies time and time again, though God kept sending his prophets to speak his word to them, Israel kept rebelling. They kept turning away from God, choosing to serve idols, going their own way. Why did God spend so much time laying out the story of Israel? Well, one of the reasons, I think, is just to show us how deep our problem goes. Uh, It's not simply that we do acts of sins. It's that we are sinners at our core in our nature. We, we give way to anger and bitterness and selfishness. We take God for granted. We minimize Him. We see Him as a means to an end rather than God of, worthy of all worship. We, we find our trust, our security, our identity in all kinds of other things other than God. In, in these and 10,000 other ways, we show ourselves to be sinners like Adam, like Israel. Friend, I wonder if that's how you, you view yourself. Uh, I, I'm not saying that there's, there's nothing good about you. No, the image of God remains. And yet, at our core, we are those who have turned away from God. And, and again, what we need to understand that is that this is a very personal thing. Don't make sin into some abstract, the breaking of some abstract moral code in the universe. No, all morality flows from God's character. And as those made in His image, when we sin, it is an expression that we are those who have rejected God and made ourselves to be God. What the story of Israel makes clear is that God will not merely stand by. No, God will not suffer his name to be trampled and defamed throughout the world. He will not stand by while evil and justice prevails. Rather, the day is coming when God will come and bring his judgment into this world. The day is coming when our separation from God will be final. And to be separated from God, the Creator, means to be separated from all the good that comes from Him. Friend, don't expect that you can reject God and still hope to enjoy the good things of this world, of this life, His good gifts. No, for you to persist in your rejection of God is for you to be separated from all that is good in this world. Friends, the the, the Bible is clear. We have all rejected God, which means we're all in desperate trouble, which means we all desperately need a Savior. Which brings us to our next point, the redemption that Christ has accomplished. Throughout the Old Testament, God promised that there would one day be a Savior, a, a Messiah who would come 
and crush the head of the serpent, who would undo the curse of sin. But what would this Messiah be like? Would he be a great warrior? Would he be a mighty prophet? Would he be a wise teacher? Well, he turned out to be far more than anyone ever expected. John 1, uh, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, John writes, reflecting on Genesis 1, uh, John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth, God in the flesh, entered our world. And make no mistake, He was God, and yet He was also fully man, fully one of us. Incredibly, God joined Himself with our humanity forever. Which means, after all these years, finally, here is a human who listens to the Father's word, whose life is a perfect display of his Father's glory, full of grace and truth. You know, at the beginning of his ministry, we see Jesus being baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends on him, and a voice from heaven says, You are my Son, whom I love. With, with you I am well pleased. Just as Adam was God's son, now we have the true son, Jesus. And after his baptism, he heads off to the wilderness, and there he is tempted by Satan. Just as Adam was tempted in the paradise garden, so now Jesus will be tempted in the wilderness. And so here's the showdown, right? Uh, All of history, every sinner has been waiting for this moment. Would anyone ever choose God over themselves? Would anyone ever resist the lies of sin and Satan? Oh, friends, it was glorious. Because where Adam failed, where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Even as Satan promises to Jesus the kingdoms of this world, if you will only worship him, Jesus refuses. And again and again, he obeys God's word rather than Satan's lies. Though Jesus stands in the line of Adam, in the line of Israel, unlike them and unlike us, Jesus perfectly pleases his heavenly Father. The Son of God comes and does what we have failed to do. He triumphs over Satan and over sin. And from there, Jesus goes on to live a life that has never since then been lived. Jesus' life is a retelling of, of the human story. Except this time, rather than giving way to sin, we see the Messiah living a life of perfect love, of perfect compassion, of perfect holiness, of perfect boldness for the truth, in perfect relationship with his heavenly Father. Do you want to see what true humanity is supposed to look like? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Friend, here is the one we've been waiting for. Here is a life that you always wish you would have lived, but haven't. This is why Jesus came. And then having lived that perfect life, Jesus once again does what 
Adam failed to do. Remember how when Adam sinned, well, he, he first of all joined Eve in her sin, and then he goes and throws her under the bus, right, blaming her for his sin. Jesus does the opposite. He, he first of all refuses to join us in our sin. He maintains a perfect obedience before God. But then he looks at sinful humanity and instead of throwing us under the bus, he says to God, Father, don't punish them. Take me instead. Let me suffer in their place and let them go free. And so Jesus goes to the cross. And there on the cross, Jesus bears the wrath, the judgment that we deserve. On the cross, we hear him crying out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? That was the forsaking that we deserved. And he dies in our place. And if that's where the story ended, it would be a tragedy. Oh, but God the Father did not abandon his son to the grave. No, rather he accepted his sacrifice, which fully exhausted all of our sin, so that three days later, Jesus rose from the dead in victory. And now, as the risen king of the universe, he holds out pardon, forgiveness to all those who will turn away from their sins and place their trust in him. Jesus promises to unite them to himself, to represent them before God, so that we now might be loved, accepted, reconciled to God the Father. Oh, friend, if you've ever wondered, after all the wrong that you've done, whether God could ever forgive you, if God could ever take you back, friend, look at the cross. Don't look at your performance. Don't look at your, your sense of willpower and commitment. Friends, you know how pathetic and fickle those things are. No, look at Jesus. Because through Jesus, we see the unending height and length and depth and breadth of God's mercy for sinners. Jesus came to rescue sinners, to give his life for them, bearing their judgment so that they might be forgiven. Again, this is what we read earlier in Colossians 1, right? For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If you're not a Christian here this morning, this is what we want to call you to. We're not calling you to, to you know, religious rituals, to give money, to, to reform your external behavior, because none of those things could ever make up for the break in your relationship with God. No, in order for there to be reconciliation, Jesus had to come, and he has come. This is why he came 2,000 years ago, God in the flesh, to accomplish what you could never have done by his perfect life and death and resurrection. God has made a way for you to be restored to a right relationship with him. Friends, that, that is the gift that we hold out to you. Not just a new circle of friends, not just the, the, the relief of your guilt removed, 
not even just the promise of heaven. No, the greatest gift that the gospel offers you is a loving, eternal relationship with your maker, with God himself, the God who, who made you, the God who owns you. Friends, this is what I'm holding out to you by the authority of God's word, that if you'll turn away from your sins and trust in Christ, you can be restored to him. And if you want to talk about that more after the service, I'd love to talk to you. There will be elders at the Welcome Center who would love to talk to you. Uh, don't leave here. Again, if you're, if you're at all thinking about this or, or intrigued by this, don't leave here without talking to someone about this. If you are a Christian, if you understand yourself to be someone who has been reconciled to God, then know that one of the best evidences that this is true in you uh, are your relationships with other people here on earth. Um, as those who have been loved so graciously by Christ, we now have the grace, the strength to extend that same love to those around us. And that's especially true in the church. In a world marked by hostility and conflict, the church is the place on earth, in this fallen world, where peace reigns through Jesus Christ. So don't take this for granted. Uh, you know, Bonhoeffer once wrote that Christian community is not simply just an ideal that we strive for. No, it is a reality that Christ has established, a reality that you get to live in, uh, li live out week in and week out. As you gather for worship, as you sit under the preaching of God's word together, as you fellowship, as you, as you take the Lord's Supper, as you speak the truth in love, as you rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, every relationship in the church is an opportunity to display the power of the gospel. And so how are your relationships here in this church? Uh, do you, are there people here who know you? Um, are, are you a part of a small group? Are, are you in discipling relationships? Um, are, are there people that you need to reconcile with? Are there people that you need to confess to? Are your relationships here at church only with people who are just like you? Or do you have an opportunity to love those who are different from you, with whom you have nothing in common but Christ? Friends, work to show the world something that they have never seen, a love that is rooted in the sacrificial love of Christ. And, and as those who have been reconciled to God, we are now on mission, aren't we? This is what we heard earlier in 2 Corinthians 5, that, that we are now ambassadors for Christ, calling the world to be reconciled to God. We've been given this ministry of reconciliation. Friends, as those in whom God's image is being restored, we now declare the good news, calling loved ones, calling uh, friends and neighbors and the nations to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Never was there an embassy with a more important message, right? The, the king is coming, and with him, behind him, are thousands upon thousands of angels ready to make war and to rid this world of evil. But in the meantime, the king has sent out his ambassadors ahead of him, even us, authorized by the king himself to represent him, to hold out his offer of pardon, of peace, to anyone who will listen. Friend, this is why we're here. So will you commit to this? Will you pray for lost ones? 
Will you work with one another to strategize about how to reach the lost in your community, in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces? Will you gather to pray for each other, to, to encourage each other not to give up in this work? Will you continue to support sacrificially the work of the gospel here and around the world? Brothers and sisters, this is the period of human history that we're living in. The Messiah has come, he's accomplished his salvation, and now the church is his embassy, proclaiming the message of peace to all the nations until people from every tribe and tongue and nation are reconciled to God and the whole earth is filled with his glory. Which brings us then to our final step, that restoration that is coming, where we are reunited with God forever. Remember how I said that the story of the Bible is a love story? So Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And so the, the final image that we see here in the scriptures uh, the end of the story is nothing less than a wedding. Christ and the church. God dwelling with his people forever. No more mourning. No more pain. John Piper writes this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, and with all the friends you have ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if God was not there? You know, I, I remember my honeymoon, and Grand came on. The food was amazing. It was beautiful. I, I learned to snorkel, saw amazing things. I'll never forget that week, but I imagine that if I had been there in that tropical paradise without my wife, I would have been miserable. I would have been miserable. What, what good would all that have been? And I imagine that even if we had stayed in some, you know, dinky hotel in the middle of nowhere, but we were together, that it would have been just as wonderful. Because the whole point is being together, right? Friend, is that how you think about God? Is that how you think about heaven? Whatever joys, whatever comforts, whatever glories will exist in heaven will exist only to deepen our joy and our love for him. We were made for a relationship with God. This is why Jesus came. Is this what you long for? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess, oh, how easily our hearts are drawn to substitutes, to things other than you, 
looking for satisfaction and fulfillment and meaning and identity and purpose in these other things rather than you. Oh God, forgive us. Lord, we confess our adulterous hearts. But God, we give you praise and thanks for your Son, Jesus Christ, who has come and who has done all that it takes for us to be reconciled to you. Lord, that that you would no longer view us as separate, but now as accepted, as reconciled. Lord, that you now would love us, that you would receive us and forgive us and guarantee to us a future with you. Oh, Lord, we praise you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. Oh, Lord, help us to, to turn to him, to trust in him, Lord, that our lives would be centered on him. And Lord, that that would be evident for the watching world. Lord, that they too might come to know you as a loving father. Oh, Father, use us, we pray, even this week. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.